Hello, and thank you for joining me for the latest episode in our 30 for Net Zero 30 series. I'm Anna Marie Slot, Global ESG and Sustainability Partner at Ashurst. And today we are joined by Chris Castro, Director of Sustainability and Resilience for the City of Orlando, and in addition, one of the co-founders of Climate First Bank. Thank you so much for joining us today, Chris. Perhaps you could start off by telling us a little bit about all of your various uh, different projects and, and how you came to start your journey in sustainability. Thanks, Anna Marie. It's great to be here with you this morning and uh, appreciate the opportunity to share the story. Uh, so starting back, I'm a second generation Cuban-American, uh, born and raised in Miami, Florida. And, um, you know, growing up, I was fortunate to have a family that really immersed me in, in nature and got me outdoors. Uh, in fact, my stepdad is, um, is a business owner of a palm tree nursery. So I grew up on a palm tree farm, growing trees. And, um, and uh, long story short, I ended up getting a full ride to the University of Central Florida. And I was undeclared at the time, but I knew that something dealing with the environment was pulling towards my heartstrings. And, and uh, I ended up focusing my studies on environmental science and policy and a minor in uh, clean energy and sustainability, really trying to focus on how do we make this transition away from fossil fuels and uh, towards a clean energy future? Uh, and so I've really kind of become a very passionate uh, eco-entrepreneur. I've had a stint in community organizing. And um, today I'm a sustainability professional. The last seven years, I've, I've served here in the city of Orlando as the senior advisor to our mayor, Buddy Dyer, and uh, the director of sustainability and resilience, really developing a comprehensive set of different policies and programs and partnerships that are really making uh, a big dent in the issue and advancing us in a cleaner and a healthier and, and a more sustainable direction. Uh, and outside of the city, you alluded to it, I'm very active as well and serve on about a dozen nonprofit and academic boards. And, and most recently, earlier this year, I'm quite honored to be a founding director of Climate First Bank, as you mentioned, it's uh, Florida's first B Corp certified community bank, uh, and really um, with a mission to change finance so that we can finance change and ultimately use our capital as a force for good. Uh, so the, the bank is fully FDIC insured. It's a kind of digital and in-person depository institution. And the overall goal is to advance lending that, that really works to draw down carbon and uh, decarbonize our future. Sounds like a busy lifestyle there, uh, <laughs> focused on uh, you know, kind of key areas uh, that, that we've talked a lot with uh, various people about. Mm -hmm. But um, so looking forward to hearing more about what you're doing. What, what do you think might have been the biggest, um, biggest shift you, you've seen sort of over the last kind of two years or 18 months? I mean, you've clearly been looking at this all the way since, um, since your college days, but, but have you seen movement in that in, in your work world? I think so. I think there's uh, certainly a, um, a new awakening and certainly a kind of a heightened awareness uh, across the general public of this concept of sustainability and even talking about the climate crisis. You know, since the pandemic, I do think that the focus on health has really helped to, to elevate and underscore this, this, the important work of sustainability um, and really the intersections of the health of our environment and how that impacts the health of our communities and how that ultimately impacts the health of our economy, right? It really um, comes back to that triple bottom line of sustainability, people, planet, and our prosperity. And, and so that's one kind of, uh, kind of new big shift that I've kind of seen is the focus on health. Secondly, I've seen a, a real focus on equity, 
you know, I, I personally believe that we can't have a sustainable future without addressing these inequities and, and really centering those that have been disadvantaged too often are Black, are Hispanic, are Indigenous, and, and other communities of color. And so I'm, I'm excited that there, there seems to be this convergence of kind of the environment, the traditional environmental group and the tra traditional social justice groups that are coming together and realizing that we can't have, uh, again, a sustainable future without addressing equity and justice as well. Uh, and lastly, I think climate. Climate, you know, I remember just getting into this in 2006. And, uh, you know, I was at the time a student activist trying to get my university, UCF, the University of Central Florida, to commit to carbon neutrality. And uh, we ended up succeeding in doing that. But I remember how difficult it was to even bring the topic up and for people to understand it. And today it's evident and it's in front of our eyes, right? We can't get away from it. The, the wildfires we're seeing out west, the unprecedented hurricanes, uh, the flooding events from those hurricanes that are now trickling up uh, further and further north. I mean, it's just, it's something that we can't even um, deny anymore, in my opinion. And, and so now it's a, it's a matter of, you know, how do we address this in, an, in the most immediate and meaningful way? No, exactly. It, 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 it's, uh, as, as other people have said, it's been brought to your front door, I think, in a lot of different ways. And we've heard that from, from a number of different guests that, that I've spoken with around how, you know, COVID actually has, um, has created a, a more focused lens and how people are looking at things. Um, I think particularly in your role as, uh, you know, part of the city of Orlando, um, I think you've you've got a particularly interesting insight into the underlying infrastructure and and grid, you know that that we need to be looking at to transform. What are you seeing? I know you were recently um, up on the hill speaking uh, speaking with the politicians in the U.S. about um, what to do, but. Could you share with us what you think are specific actions that need to happen in kind of the next two to three years to really be a game changer around what's happening with the net zero promises that people are making? Yeah, most definitely. And, you know, back in 2017 and 18, the city of Orlando participated in something called the American Cities Climate Challenge. And this was a competition among the 100 largest cities in America to develop strategies that would drastically reduce emissions by the greatest amount over a five-year period. It was really a short-term window to say, what are those big, you know, high-impact actions that we could be doing? Orlando pulled together um, a very robust plan of about 15 different policy and program strategies, and we ended up being selected as one of the 25 winners of this climate challenge. And, um, you know, one, I think it's really critical that data guides the actions and the priorities of any given community. And so, you know, since 2007, when Mayor Dyer launched our Greenworks Orlando initiative, we've been um, accounting, we've been doing a greenhouse gas emissions inventory, right, a carbon accounting, to really understand what are the sectors of the economy that are contributing the most to this problem and how do we start to address those? Well, it's been fascinating to, to, to see the trends. And first and foremost, when I first saw this, I was shocked that building energy use in the residential and the commercial buildings made up over 72% of Orlando's annual emissions profile. And we know that buildings on average are wasting between 20 and 30% of their energy. And it was evident that accelerating energy efficiency is the critical first step, not just for our city, but I think we're seeing that across the country, 
and around the world, energy efficiency happens to be one of the most cost-effective uh, and impactful strategies. And so we've been doing a lot around enabling clean energy financing tools like PACE, the Property Assessed Clean Energy, or SELF, the Solar and Energy Loan Fund, just as two examples of how we can you know, provide capital to offset that upfront cost to make these improvements. Uh, in addition, we have a policy that requires that buildings actually monitor and track their energy and water use, their carbon footprints, uh, and report that information every year to the city so that we make that publicly transparent. It's a benchmarking and energy audit law that was passed in 2016. So buildings are such a key piece of this. The infrastructure that we live and, and work in every single day um, happens to be a silent emitter, right? They don't have smokestacks on top of buildings, but believe it or not, they are the biggest contributor in our city to this problem. Secondly, most of those emissions associated with buildings are dealing with the electricity and the emissions associated with that electricity, right? We're still using predominantly fossil fuels to power our city and most of this country. And so hardening our grid, modernizing that to make it more resilient and focusing it on decarbonizing the electric supply is the second key area, key focused area for us in Orlando and I think around the country. We've been doing a lot to invest in rooftop solar on municipal properties. Uh, we have now over 150 megawatts of community solar uh, that we're tapping into here for our municipal operations and, and citywide businesses and residents. Uh, we're beginning to see solar carports go up over flat parking lots and parking garages. And, and Orlando is interestingly enough pioneering uh, floating solar. We're, we're part of the leading uh, edge of, of solar applications where we're starting to install solar on water bodies. In fact, we have one here at the Orlando International Airport as a showcase to the world of, of the future of, of photovoltaics. Um, so decarbonizing the electric supply is, is certainly the, you know, a, a key priority for us and we're doing a lot in that space. And it happens to be also a priority for our uh, Biden administration here at the federal government where they're looking to, to push a 100% clean electricity standard by 2035 and hopefully get that through Congress. Uh, thirdly, is following buildings, about 27% of our emissions are associated with on-road transportation. This is the use of gasoline and diesel and CNG that are powering our methods of mobility. And so reducing our vehicle miles traveled in our city is actually the first step to addressing that, that issue. And we've been doing a lot to enable micromobility, things like electric scooters and electric bikes and you know, a car share and ride share opportunities. We're beginning to roll out autonomous electric shuttles in some of our neighborhoods like the Lake Nona community in South Orlando that now has 15 different shuttles moving people around to and from their homes in the town center. And, and lastly, um, but certainly not least, uh, the partnership with our transit authority uh, links uh, in terms of bus electrification. I've been working together for the last four or five years on, uh, on moving our downtown bus rapid transit to, a, to an electrified system, a zero emission. And I'd say the last thing really quickly is, you know, our priority is around electrifying everything. Moving forward, we need to make sure that our vehicles, our buildings, really everything is moving towards, you know, being electrified. And here in Florida, where we have a huge cooling load and not so much of a heating load, we're already using mostly electricity for, for our buildings. And so we've been thinking about, well, how do we get ready for, as an example, electric vehicles? We've been deploying you know, hundreds of electric vehicle charging stations. We just turned on a, a hundred new stations on public property uh, at city parks and parking garages and rec centers. Uh, we're also building these downtown uh, fast charging hubs for DC fast chargers so that 
people um, that are commuting to and from um, can can get charged up really quickly. And we're even, we just two weeks ago passed an EV readiness code, which requires moving forward in January 1st of 2022, all new construction to come equipped with a minimum level of EV readiness, um, including some installed chargers and other future proofing the electrical infrastructure to make it easier later down the line. So those are the four key areas of opportunity. And, and I think that there's a lot of alignment with other cities around the country in terms of how their emissions uh, data is looking and where we need to start targeting our investments and, and our dollars to, to accelerate towards a zero carbon future. Now, all excellent initiatives. I think really interesting, obviously, is, is that, you know, your, your fir first point around energy efficiency, and, and that's a real win for businesses, right? I mean, as it, 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 is, it is them overpaying, essentially. So I think a lot of people who struggle with where to start or what to focus on, that's a that's a fantastic first step for companies to think, okay, where, you know, what is my energy efficiency and how can I improve that? Um, and, and that's certainly one, no doubt. right, that, that plays well internally as well. Um, well, Mayor, just really quickly on that point, Mayor loves to talk about our, our programs for energy efficiency because you're absolutely right. This is the business case for sustainability. Uh, you know, we uh, in 2016 ended up moving forward very ambitiously with a $17.5 million green bond. This was the first green bond that the city took out. And the whole objective was to go back into our outdated and energy hog buildings and to retrofit them. And at the end of the day, we're paying for it one way or another. Either we're paying the utility or we're paying and investing in our buildings that will help minimize the cost of operations and therefore taxpayer expenses to run the city. And so we took that 17.5 million and since then have made, have retrofitted 55 of the most energy intensive buildings and, and now are seeing incredible results. We're seeing over $2.2 million per year in avoided cost savings, which we're using by the way, to pay the debt service on that green bond, plus an additional about 250,000 per year that has created a revolving energy fund. So now we're taking those savings and we're reinvesting those savings into other buildings so we can save more and reinvesting those savings, so on and so forth. And across the 7 million square feet that we, that we have conditioned, we have seen a reduction of 23.4% since that launch in 2016. So in five years, almost a quarter of the power that we were using across our entire municipal portfolio has been reduced and is now much more efficient, which is allowing us to take those excess dollars and put it back to work into the community. So you're absolutely right. Energy efficiency is the best first step. It makes business sense as a great return on investment. And it happens to be one of the best ways to reduce carbon pollution from the smokestacks. <laughs> no, it's that, that it's like a triple win. It's, it's, it's like your three Ps that you started with. Um, but and and I think other things that you that you've mentioned are also really interesting because we get the question a lot about you know what what, what role do, you know the different players in an economic system um, play in driving uh, you know the the achievement of net zero ambitions and I think having transparency laws like you have have, have noted from 2016 that that kind of transparency really drives market behavior. Um, and, and the decarbonization um, agenda, but also, you know, having building codes that say, look, this is, this is, the, this is what the grid's going to have to look like going forward. So you need to build that in now so that we, 
you know, we can shift to an all electric grid that is a decarbonized grid. Um, th those are those are great, um, great movements. Um, I'm almost afraid to ask, given that all, all of the different things that you're at work on, um, but I do always ask, what, what is your own, you know, kind of your own commitment to net zero on a personal level? Do you, do you have one or do you just go to work every day? Oh, I definitely have one. This is not uh, what I do, it's who I am. Uh, and uh, so over the last 10 years, I'm relatively new into my career. Over the last 10 years, though, I, I have been really focused on uh, early steps to decarbonize my life. And I started out growing my own food. I uh, actually launched a nonprofit called Fleet Farming that converts homeowner lawns, front lawns and back lawns into in-ground farms. Uh, and, um, and, and so I started to really get engaged in uh, trying to minimize uh, food miles that, that I was contributing to and, and to really localize the food and also improve my health from the nutritious food that I was eating. Uh, and that led me to uh, other things, right? Re-earthing and composting is a natural process of that food system. And so in addition to recycling, which I'd been doing, I started composting in my house and I have been uh, over the last decade. And I even have now my daughter who's four years old, you know, every other day going out with my compost pail and we get to tip it together and, and, and make soil, which is amazing. Um, and then two years ago, I actually got to um, invest in rooftop solar for my home. So I have a 10 kilowatt system uh, and I'm happy to say that it, it exports uh, clean power every single day and over the course of the month, I'm, I'm, I'm banking credits, so to speak. Um, and earlier this year, I got into my first all electric. Uh, I had a plug-in hybrid before, but I got into my first all electric vehicle, which is now powered by that solar on the home. And so I'm starting to make that journey towards a decarbonized future for my own personal life. And I know I still have a lot to go, especially with the kind of scope three supply chains and, you know, things that I'm purchasing, but I, I try my best to, to, to support local businesses and uh, move in that direction. So yeah, from, from the power that I'm getting to the transportation to and from uh, work every day, uh, to what I'm trying to do with my waste, to where I'm getting my food, of course, water and being so efficient with that. Um, and, you know, other ways that, that we're trying to interact with, you know, the natural world, the, our landscape and really pushing native and, and Florida friendly landscapes throughout the house. Those are some of my ways and personal commitments. Excellent, excellent. I think if, if, if people could just take one of those, it's, it's a good starting place. Um, and, and then this is, you know, this is where you kind of get to, to, um, to tell us your aspiration. If there, if there was one thing that you could have happen or, or one person that you could have influenced, what would that be? And, and, and what would the outcome be? What, what would the, or who would that person be? to really deliver that net zero that we all need. And in fact, that net negative. Yeah, no kidding. We got to draw down beyond the net zero for sure. I'm, I'm not sure who the one person would be. I would say it had to get to the top of the, the chain and, and, and maybe get to President Biden ultimately. But the idea here is I've always found it fascinating that we spend hundreds of billions of dollars, taxpayer dollars every year to subsidize extremely profitable corporations, specifically oil and gas. Uh, and as if they weren't making enough money already, we're, 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 we're helping to subsidize essentially corporate welfare. And, and I have a real issue with that. Um, I believe that we can't really get to the net zero future that we're striving for in the time that we need to unless we advance a price on the problem. You know, if, 
if we continue to use our atmosphere as a free sewer, can we expect to get out of this problem and achieve net zero in the time we have? I don't think so. I mean, we don't value the problem. So without putting a price on the externality and without integrating that externality into the economic equation of whether we're going to build a new cogen natural gas plant or whether we're going to replace that with solar and storage instead, I think it's, it's going to be really difficult. Now, we are starting to see a great change in the overall economics of renewable energy, not just here in the States, but around the world. And um, every year it gets better. We know that. Uh, and so there is a crossover point where we're beginning to see that even here in Florida, without state subsidies, uh, that the cheapest form of new power generation is solar, is renewable energy in the state of Florida. And so every utility is going gangbusters, putting out huge utility solar farms, whether it's FPL, whether it's Duke Energy, whether it's our own municipal utility, OUC. And so that's really exciting because the market is indicating that uh, not only is this good for the planet and for public health, but it's also good for the economy and for jobs. But back to the, back to the problem, I, I don't think that we can truly solve this without putting a price on the problem. There's different ways of going about it. We know that that's always been in debate, but regardless of what we do, we need a national standard on that. And, and I think that would create um, tremendous momentum. Um, and build upon the momentum that we're seeing in accelerating kind of a zero carbon future. Great, Chris. Well, you know, uh, Florida has always been known for the sunshine. Um, and uh, so using it for solar is, is, is a, great, uh, a great part of, of getting to net zero, certainly. Um, but thank you so much for joining us today. A really interesting takeaways around, you know, the, the, the benefits of cost savings, really interesting points around how you're um, reinvigorating the grid, looking to decarbonize the, the electrical supply, you know, how, how you know, Florida is, is um, hopefully competing in a positive way with other cities about, you know, what to do next and how to do it best. Um, but appreciate your time and appreciate you coming on today. My pleasure. Thank you for the invite. It was a great convo. If you enjoy ESG Matters at Ashurst, why not check out our other two podcast series as well? Ashurst Business Agenda tackles the big strategic issues that business leaders face. And Ashurst Legal Outlook explains the emerging legal trends and requirements of our fast-changing world. You can listen and subscribe to Business Agenda and Legal Outlook wherever you get your podcasts.